we're not talking about simply eliminating things from a portfolio. What we're discussing when we say ESG and, and we look at different investment strategies is this question of how can considering sustainability enhance your ability as, a, as an investor, as a decision maker, basically to have more information on, on companies. This month on Ebb and Flow, we are talking about sustainable investing, a rapidly evolving space that is attracting the interest and the assets of investors around the world. Our guest is Amantia Muhidini, a sustainable investment strategist with a distinguished resume that tracks her course from Princeton University to Columbia's School of International and Public Affairs to an impressive career in socially responsible investing that has led her, we're happy to say, to the UBS Chief Investment Office. In our conversation, Amantia describes the philosophy behind environmental, social, and governance investing, the remarkable proliferation of investment options, progress towards specific sustainable goals like diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the drivers pushing sustainable investing inevitably into the mainstream. On behalf of all of us at UBS Long River Wealth Management, welcome to this month's edition of Ebb and Flow. Uh, Mantia Muhidini, thank you so much for being with us. It's good to be with you, and I'm excited for our conversation today. Hi, Paul. Thanks for the invite. Amantia, let's begin with the big question and get it out of the way here. Is it sustainable investing or environmental, social, and governance investing? Sure. So this, this is a great question. And really, I mean, there are so many terms out there. Uh, between sustainable investing, ESG, ESG investing, socially responsible investing, lots of different terms flying around in our industry. And I'd say to your specific question, it's really both. So we think of the term sustainable investing as the umbrella terminology to refer to all of the different ways in which you can consider how environmental, social, and governance factors or topics are embedded in the investment decision-making process. So then, you know, ESG investing per se, you could think of either as a subset, as one of the ways in which you can implement sustainable investing, or also as the set of factors and topics that influence decision-making and also have an impact on company behavior or performance. Um, so ESG integration or ESG investing would be one approach and, you know, others are impact investing, for example, or exclusionary screening, all which fall under this concept of SI or sustainable investing. If you would, take us through each of the pillars in ESG, environmental, social governance, and what they mean in the investment context. ESNG. Uh, when we think of the E in environment, there's really a wide variety of, of metrics or indicators or elements that an investor uh, may want to look at as they're evaluating companies and how they are managing both their environmental footprint in the world as well as how they're managing for risks or opportunities to do with this broad topic of the environment. So to give just a couple of examples to help make this sort of clearer, one indicator or one metric that one often finds under the E pillar of ESG would be carbon footprint. So, so evaluating what the carbon emissions and carbon footprint of uh, an issuer is over a certain period of time, and not only sort of the, the snapshot in, in time look of a carbon footprint, but potentially also looking at a carbon footprint trend over time and whether the company or sort of any issuer really is trending up or down and how it's managing its footprint. This is something that is often 
measured through looking at actual emission levels as well as through simulations based on company business revenue and so on. And another element, you know, again, uh, you know, if we think carbon footprint is something that is external going out there in the world from the company, the E also measures often policies related to climate change. So is is the company or or, or really any issuer prepared in how they're sort of orienting their business and how they're managing their operations to prepare for climate change risks as they come. Uh, do they have policies in place? Are they, are they setting targets? Do they have oversight mechanisms set internally? So all of these are the different kinds of elements that would fall under E, but the range really is, is quite large. So even things like water consumption would fall under mm-hmm. the E, uh, just to give another example. Now, if we think of the S, the social pillar of ESG. Here, often, I, I find that people are surprised. So you think of S, and, and I think some of the more immediately evident indicators that come to mind would be topics such as uh, worker health and safety policies, or instances of incidents, for example, of, or uh, where, you know, whether problems of, of kind of worker health, uh, and, and so it's not just the policies, but also in actuality, uh, are, is there safety mechanisms or are there sort of uh, incidents happening in a workplace? Uh, also, often diversity of the workforce and as well as policies that promote and enable uh, diversity and equality within an issue or would fall under the S. However, another category of interesting indicators that are often captured under the S pillar of ESG are topics to do with data privacy. Hmm. Uh, so whether, you know, the issuer has in place, uh, you know, robust enough policies and, and systems to ensure data privacy and security. And so again, you know, often all of these different topics are immediately come back to how the company is is being run and sort of what risks it's exposed to, and it becomes easier to understand how ESG can be material if we think of of uh, adding this lens to observe whether companies are prepared to protect their data, especially as we're moving in this even more digital world. And in particular now, where many industries are still working in a distributed fashion, you know, heavily relying on the cloud and, and sort of with many employees in various industries still being in a work-from-home or hybrid context. And then finally, the G. Uh, so the G of ESG is really one element that has been and one pillar that has already been considered by the investment industry for a long time now. And it includes elements such as good governance, board independence, board diversity, and so on, which really points to uh, some core elements of whether the issuer and the corporates in particular are governed in the way that position them for success. Now, having run through all of these three, I do want to mention that they said there are multiple of these metrics under the ES and the G. Uh, often we see ESG scores that are rolled up uh, into one headline score, but that it's important to understand just how much goes sort of underneath and, and really how it, that's why it's important then for investors to dig underneath the data and to think of what are the topics uh, what are the specific metrics and indicators which are actually relevant to a company and industry, which are actually, you know, material uh, to the financial performance of each company based on their industry? I'll give one final example again, just to bring this this final point to life here. That if we think of um, an environmental indicator such as water consumption or water footprint, you see that that is a 
indicator that is maybe more relevant for an industry such as utilities, for example, or kind of industries within agriculture than for financial, Mm -hmm. where naturally you'd expect companies in financial to have a lower water consumption, lower water footprint that's not core to, to running these companies or to their business models. But, you know, a sound ESG investing process would embed this realization basically and would, in a way, place more emphasis to how uh, utilities or, or ag companies are doing on their water footprint versus financials. And and, and so, we, you know, we could go on and on with these examples, but I'll, I'll pause here for a second. No, I mean, that's a, it's a fascinating concept. And, and as you were talking about materiality, I was thinking, and also about data privacy, which sort of surprised me. I was thinking, you know, what must be interesting, too, is to watch how materiality changes over time for industries. I mean, if you think about how much more digital the world has become just through COVID with people going remote, you know, originally data privacy would have applied to, you know, obviously social media companies, healthcare, but now it applies to, to so many other industries. So it's, it's really a, an interesting concept. So, Amantia, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say that the subject of sustainable investing is, or ESG, is coming up in, I'd say, one out of every three client meetings we're having this year. And and while I'm relatively new to the Long River Wealth Management team, I'm told this is a relatively recent phenomenon. So, can you talk about the rising interest in ESG and where this is coming from? Sure, of course. So, ESG investing, sustainable investing in general, is not new. Um, it's really the origins of this investment philosophy are are seated in, in the 60s and, and 70s with socially responsible investing, but only in the recent decade it started uh, kind of evolving in the current form that we think of of it and kind of embedding this concept of materiality and financial performance in investing. And really the last five to three years, it started uh, accelerating in, in uptick. And, and 2020 really, I think, increased the, the positive momentum that we're already seeing. It's funny for me to hear that you're saying the, the topic is coming up in one uh, out of every three client meetings, because this is actually, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a good parallel. It's consistent to recent data from the U.S. SIF organization, which is um, one of the organizations that track assets sort of managed in in strategies that consider ESG factors and and what they found is that as of the end of 2019 one in 3 dollars in professionally managed accounts in the US were were in these ESG sort of considered strategies mm. So it's a, it's a funny parallel to kind of your experience with the firm uh, and I'll say even you know we're seeing this big mainstreaming and yet what what is happening in reality is that although, as I started by saying, SI is not new, it's often, you know, new to me for many of the of clients, many, many individual investors. And I think as we're all as individuals are sort of found ourselves in particular in 2020 in the middle of these three major colliding crises, you know, between our health crisis with the global pandemic, the social crisis with all of the social unrest and protests around Black Lives Matter in sort of over the course of, of the year that um, really accelerated, although they've been around for, for much longer than just 2020, I should say. And also we found ourselves, you know, recognizing increasingly the climate crisis mm. as we've had all of these extreme weather events that have manifested in really devastating consequences from um, the, the fires in, in California 
over the, the late summer and sort of early fall, which were some of the largest in the state's history, to kind of other events, uh, really all of these coalesced and I think brought really an emphasis to the fact that these environmental and social topics, they're not just sort of an aside matter, something that we care about but may or may not impact us. They really came to the fore and are and and showed to investors and governments how they're they're critical to our well-being, to our economies, how everything is cyclical and uh, and interconnected. And I think this realization combined and uh, with with increased government action as well in in recognizing considering climate change within as part of the recovery is important formed this really perfect storm to to bring to help push a ESG further toward the mainstream and really accelerate this this long going momentum. I love that phrase. It's not new, but it's new to me, and I, and I think that is absolutely uh, what we're hearing. Taking it a, a little bit more personal, Amantia, I'm curious, um, you know, the other thing we've seen here is that this space has also attracted a lot of very talented professionals like yourself um, into devoting their careers to to ESG and, and sustainable investing. So what drew you personally into this space? So that's a great question. So my training and my education, both at undergraduate and, and graduate level, is in public policy and economic development. And my background professionally before moving into financial services was in, in strategic philanthropy where I was working on topics such as labor exploitation in global corporate supply chains and, you know, taking a philanthropic angle and look into it, but really uh, realizing in that process that all of these systems are interconnected, that the best way to drive positive change in the world is to is to work towards embedding and recognizing how all of these social and environmental issues really are are material and how they matter to to companies to companies they matter to industries. Um, so so really, I think over the course of my career, I, I saw all of these pieces come together in one coherent system, and I thought that. You know, this, it's fascinating to see this space of ESG and sustainable investing evolve with, with so much um, promise mm. uh, that I, you know, I wanted to be part of it. Uh, I was excited to, to learn more and, and sort of bring, hopefully, this, uh, this development and policy angle to it, which has proven helpful in, as I come and bring all of these worlds together, essentially. So let's talk about the actual investment vehicles that are available now to to people interested in the space. And, you know, there has, of course, been a proliferation, if you will, of these sorts of investments. And it's been great to see. But I'll say that as a financial advisor, it, it can be sometimes a challenge to keep up with and fully understand where best to recommend and when best to recommend a solution. There's exclusion, there's integration, there's impact investing, and then a whole host of subcategories, things like improvers and leaders, et cetera. So I'm wondering if you can take us through the universe. I know that's a tough question, but try to boil it down. What are the general categories and how should we think about these these choices? Mm-hmm. Sure. So I think that you, you hinted at being a tough question. The reason why it's so is because there is a lot of differentiation in sustainable investing, as you point out. Um, but there's good reason for that. Um, you know, sustainability means 
different things to different people and and individuals uh, and and you know families and and all people who navigate towards sustainable investing do so because they have different objectives they're looking for different things so really kind of the first thing to do is to think about why is it that someone, a group or an individual, would want to be interested in sustainable investing? You know, are they looking to align their portfolios with their values, for example? Or are they doing this because they want to find new opportunities to invest? Or are they looking for diversification? Or maybe they're just concerned about specific risks that they see in the horizon and they want to help further future-proof their investments. And so recognizing that Someone may want all of these things at the same time, but perhaps they may just be interested in one of these angles. Help sort through and organize through all of the different actual implementation options that exist in this space. So you mentioned exclusion, impact, integration. These are the highest level categories of the universe. And, you know, briefly, exclusion refers to an approach where investors select to screen out companies or sometimes entire industries that don't align with their values. And often exclusions are, are the appropriate solution for individuals who really care about the values alignment in their portfolios. ESG integration, on the other hand, is another approach, looks to, instead of screening out, looks to screening in. So looks to proactively, you know, considering how these ESG factors are impacting the portfolio while looking for competitive returns at the same time. Hmm. And impact investing is looking for intentional, measurable change in the world, again, without sacrificing return while still looking for competitive or better financial return. But instead of seeking to use ESG as a way of uh, simply adding diversification opportunities or lowering risks for their portfolio, their objective is to simultaneously intentionally drive measurable change in the world. Let me ask you this, Amantia. When people are looking at these things, when they've established what their objectives are and then you know married those to the appropriate approach, one or more, do they then typically look at this as a core portion of their portfolio or is it more of a satellite approach? Is it a weighed-in kind of thing? I mean, how are most clients that you're speaking with incorporating this stuff into their portfolios? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question, truly often the question that we're asked. And the answer is that it depends on the situation. But two main sort of one bifurcation, if you think about it, of different scenarios is, is, you know, whether the client is starting with cash that they're looking to invest sustainably or whether they have an existing allocation, uh, which they're looking to transition in full or in part towards uh, a portfolio, which, which is sustainable or considers sustainability. So, so sometimes, in a way, the approach to doing this will will vary on what on the starting point, and you know, starting starting with kind of with cash that can be invested. Uh, some investors will choose to to go towards a 100% diversified, sustainable portfolio right off the bat, whereas others will say um, they'll choose to carve out a specific allocation, you know, part of their portfolio basically, and invest that in in strategies uh, and vehicles that that have ESG characteristics or that are um, repositioned or sort of aligned with a specific long-term investment theme that is sustainable, that, that provides these sustainable growth opportunities potentially. Or sometimes what they'll do on the flip side, instead of this 
separate carve-out allocation for opportunities, they may look to start replacing some of the core elements of their portfolio with the kind of the ESG or the SI equivalent. Mm. So one example here, again, just to bring it a little bit more to life, you know, if you think of a uh, fixed income portion of the portfolio, and, and I'm choosing fixed income because I know we often think of equities mm-hmm. as uh, when we think of sustainable investing, but a lot to, a lot of opportunities in fixed income as well. So for fixed income, an investor may choose to add an allocation to green bonds to replace some of their corporate IG, corporate investment grade kind of allocation in their portfolio. Or they may look to add sort of some bonds from multilateral development banks, for example, where the use of proceeds of the bonds will go towards advancing development projects around the world. And that is very comparable to the return profile and yield profile from U.S. Treasuries. So that's another way that you can sort of add in this uh, core fixed income element in in the portfolio, which otherwise uh, isn't necessarily considering ESG or, or sustainability factors. And then finally, you know, as I said, there, there's a way for investors who are to, to eventually transition, if this is their goal, towards a 100% sustainable portfolio. And what this means is really diversifying uh, both across traditional asset classes and geographies, but also across the different ways in which sustainability can be embedded into the financial decision-making, both in equities and in fixed income. Hmm. So a follow-up question to that, or, you know, it's a separate but related that, you know, one question I get from clients sometimes when we're showing them some of the the investment vehicles that are available and we're kind of looking within them at, at some names or, or components and a client will say, wait a minute, why is there an, an energy name in there? You know, <laughs> I thought this was a sustainable portfolio. Why am I looking at an oil company? Why might we see that kind of presence in, in a sustainable product? Yeah, this is also a question which we get a lot as well. Uh, and really, the at the highest level, the way to think about this is to what I said earlier, that sustainability means different things for different people, and and people will choose to add sustainable vehicles to their portfolios for different reasons. One of the main approaches, the core approaches to which ESG investing has evolved is through ESG leader strategies. So these are strategies which essentially select the companies that are best in class, best in their sector, or so either industry or best in their you know specific geography and industry at managing these ESG risks and positioning for opportunity. But if you think about it, a this kind of best in class ESG leader approach, because it's selecting companies within their category, it means that you, you you would see oil and gas names there, for example, even in this ESG portfolio, but they are likely to be the oil and gas names that are among their peers, the, the best prepared ones for, you know, the climate transition or the ones who are investing the most towards R&D or, or sort of the switch towards providing renewable energy as part of their revenue model. This is one reason why you'd find those those types of names in an ESG leader portfolio. And then bringing this back to a to the question of what does the investor want? Why are they interested in ESG? If they're doing this because they're looking to benefit from the the kind of the risk return potential benefits that ESG investing can bring, then an ESG leaders approach which diversifies across industries but selects companies that are best prepared would be appropriate. 
However, if an investor is looking for this approach because they're coming from sort of a values perspective or because they're looking to position for positive opportunities, but also while simultaneously helping to, to invest or kind of increase financing to solve some of the global challenges of the world, then, then a thematic approach, which focuses on sustainable themes, such as renewable energy or smart mobility and so on, that may be more appropriate. As you talk about this, I, I'm thinking of a different way of looking at, you know, between sort of the exclusion practice of, of sort of completely excluding or abandoning a, an industry or a, you know, a segment that, you know, a sinner segment of, of industry versus this approach, which is more of a rewarding those companies uh, who are doing better than their peers, right? Which I, which I guess is a way to encourage improvement even in those parts of the economy that uh, that have historically been labeled uh, as not sustainable. So anyway, I babble, but let's let's move on. And I'd I'd like to talk about uh, a more thematic or a narrower focus, and and um, and something that comes up a lot in our client conversations again, and and that is how investors can support diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I'm, my question to you is, how has ESG investing, or has it been able to make any progress toward these goals? So, yeah, that's a great question and definitely yet another one uh, that has really increased in momentum, not just for us here at UBS, but but truly across the industry. Uh, So, I'll say ESG investing, if we think of broadly the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion, has been making progress towards these goals. But if we break down then the sort of the different types of diversity, we quickly realize that the progress is definitely there. There's momentum, but we're seeing um, progress accelerate at different speeds. And what I mean by this is that if we think of gender diversity as one element mm-hmm. of uh, diversity and equality or DNI investing, uh, we've seen definitely sort of a progressive recognition of, of gender and sort of the role of gender diversity in investing uh, over the last few years. And and that sort of recognition of the importance of this topic has then uh, been succeeded by increased availability of data with companies reporting more and more about the levels of gender diversity at their board or senior leadership or even um, generally sort of in their corporate ranks and, and value chains. Um, and, you know, more data means more information, which means more ability for investors to discern uh, between companies and to, to embed this information in their decision-making to identify what, what companies they think are better positioned for success. The same availability of data hasn't been as, as clear, as evident when it comes to racial or ethnic diversity, for example, where in general, so far we've seen far less reporting and also far less representation from the data we are able to glean coming from the corporate sector on racial or ethnic diversity. You know, I'm speaking mainly to the U.S. here, but this problem of poor sort of data visibility on these topics is really global, and the reasons are multiple. In some regions of the world, and in some European countries in particular, it's actually not possible. Companies aren't allowed to report that kind of data, Mm. whereas in others, there's just that practice hasn't been there. Now, you asked about progress. So even though we haven't seen as fast of an acceleration of sort of data on, on these racial and ethnic metrics so far, what we've seen over the last year in particular has been an increased demand by investors and by the general public, really, for disclosure. 
there was a group of investors where their assets under management, um, I think totaled around $3 million, who sent a letter to all the companies in the Russell 3000, for example, requesting them to officially disclose information on racial and ethnic diversity alongside with gender diversity by the end of 2021. And we've seen that companies are already starting to respond. And so there's already more visibility on this. And really, um, ESG investing is just helping push the needle when it comes to progress on these issues through these demands, through investor engagement, which will eventually result in better information and data and a better ability to embed this information in actual investment decision making, which will often will will end up seeing, you know, fall under the the S so to speak of of ESG investing. That's fascinating. I, n- I never would have thought of the of the data challenge, but obviously it, it, it's there, particularly in that in that part of this challenge. Let's move on to a, a, another question here. And, and I'm going to just tell a quick anecdote to set this up. And I, I was at a, a conference on investing several years ago now, and there was a panel on ESG. You know, again, this was a few years ago, and I admit things have evolved since then. But there was a point when audience members were asked what would keep them from investing in ESG. And everybody had a, a sort of iPad in the audience and they could broadcast their, their answers up onto the screen. And, and the answers that came up on the screen were uniformly performance or comments like, you know, I give to charity in other ways. And so, you know, you get the picture. There was skepticism out there and it seemed to center on this, this concept of performance. So can you talk about performance across sustainable investing vehicles, has it improved? Is this still kind of charitable behavior or is this uh, really a competitive means for investing? It's an important question. And it's funny that you say you saw this on a panel a few years ago in a conference. I find that still we start most conversations and most presentations on on ESG and, and SI with kind of discussing the performance question right off the bat, right, just to get it out of the way. What we have seen in the data, both in market data and by reviewing academic research, is that in a diversified portfolio and over sort of the long term, sustainable investing strategies, ESG strategies, should perform comparatively to traditional strategies. And in some cases, over specific uh, types of approaches or specific market cycles, you may even see outperformance. So really what this means is that there is not and should not be any trade-off between incorporating sustainability considerations into investing and expected risk and return that you you should sort of get as a result of this investing. So the data is there. One seminal study that I always like like to mention is a study that was conducted a few years ago now in 2015, but it did it was a meta study which reviewed over 2,000 academic publications that looked at this question of how does uh, incorporating ESG influence financial performance for portfolios. And 55% of those 2,000 studies found that ESG investing would lead to outperformance. Hmm. And now you may say, all right, 55%, fine, that's more than half, but does this mean that then the rest, 45%, was saying no? It's pretty close. And mm-hmm. uh, actually, only 7% of these studies found uh, the opposite result, that it could lead to underperformance. And really, that differential, basically, they found either no relation or comparative performance, meaning, you know, 
back to the headline here that PSG investing should result in comparable returns. And data aside, if you think about why this would be the case, just conceptually speaking, is we're not talking about simply eliminating things from a portfolio. What we're discussing when we say ESG and, and we look at different investment strategies is this question of how can considering sustainability enhance your ability as a as an investor, as a decision maker, basically to have more information on, on companies, on the or or the issuers that you're evaluating, to evaluate how they are prepared to manage these risks or sort of any unforeseen opportunities that may come, as well as, uh, in a way, the, the predictable risks that we already see far in the horizon, and some of which are coming really close, like climate change, for example, or you know, government increased action and scrutiny around social art issues or, or governance issues. So really, that's conceptually why there should be no reason to expect that this is charitable, that you have to give up returns. And then a final point in thinking about what's the perception out there on this topic. Um, I said that we keep mentioning this right off the bat, but it doesn't seem that this is any longer the top deterrent for investors to engage in sustainable investing. One recent UBS Investor Watch uh, piece from December 2020 found that 7 in 10 investors, U.S. investors, they interviewed whether they would expect similar or higher returns from sustainable strategies as compared to the traditional ones. So I think um, we're, we're getting there. And as ESG moves more into the mainstream, we're all becoming more sophisticated about this. So so sort of the, the questions on and potential headwinds are, are really kind of evolving. And so it, it's actually, you know, it's great to see and it means more opportunities, really. So we have a couple of minutes left, Amantia, and, and I, I didn't want to leave today's conversation without talking about politics, I guess, unfortunately. But we've recently seen a new administration, you know, a change of power coming into Washington, D.C. And, and I wonder, given what you and we all know about the stated priorities of the Biden administration, how may those priorities play out in the ESG world? So the Biden administration, even since sort of prior to, to being elected, came uh, came forward with a significant focus on climate change. They promised a $2 trillion package of focus on climate change and infrastructure over the summer of 2020. And, you know, some some questions that, that we were, were all were wondering about was, would they really sort of hold to this promise? Would they really make climate change a focus of the administration? I'm using climate here, but, but really um, this applies to other sustainability issues and, and topics that fall under sort of the purview of ESG. And what we found is that really from the first day in the office, President Biden signed an executive order having the U.S. rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, as well as then additional kind of executive action followed, which is really indicating that they are taking this commitment seriously. The Biden administration has publicly stated that they plan to take a all-of-government, quote-unquote, approach to addressing climate change, and they're implementing this by by creating or, or kind of installing high-profile roles and individuals and positions across government agencies where, with a specific remit of really embedding climate analysis, climate response across the U.S. government. One particular such appointment worth mentioning is, for example, the U.S. Treasury, Janet Yellen, has been a 
publicly outspoken advocate for incorporating climate change risks into decision making. Hmm. And she recently created a, a position of a climate czar within the U.S. Treasury. So, so we expect more kind of policy attention and regulatory attention coming from that direction. And, you know, beyond regulation across government agencies, if we think of what could come from the legislative side, a $2 trillion package on climate change as such might be challenging for the the government to, to pass, given their uh, very narrow majority in the Senate. However, we expect that climate change responsiveness will still be one of the unifying factors that will underpin lots of the sort of other bills that, that will be coming in front of the Senate, including any infrastructure investing that the government may plan. And what this translates to when we think of an investment opportunity is, is that we expect to see further incentives come into play for electric vehicles for the development of renewable power, for the development of clean energy with, you know, hydrogen being one of those examples or kind of investment towards the electric grid upgrades. And all of these should boost earnings outlook for a range of companies that fall under all of these green tech type industries. And here I should, you know, I should pause for a second and just note that a lot of these companies in these industries have already seen very rich valuations as the market has already, to some extent, been pricing in this expected focus by the government on these topics. But we still believe that opportunities exist there within pockets of uh, of this um, green tech industry where if you move away from pure play companies, uh, which are solely dedicated to some of these industries and you look to more diversified ones, you still see more reasonable valuations and and scope for growth and opportunity there as well. So, Amantia, I've saved the most difficult question for last, and it's difficult because I'm going to ask you to distill into a couple of lines (laughs) everything that we've talked about today. And I'll I'll do that by asking you to imagine yourself in an elevator. Um, Say you're actually back in an office building (laughs) after COVID. You get in the elevator at the end of a workday, and in walks a UBS client. And she says to you, Oh, hi, I I recognize you as that famed uh, ESG analyst. (laughs) And what do I need to know about this space right now? What would you say in that short elevator ride? (laughs) So I'll say, I think I've forgotten what it feels like to be in an elevator, definitely with another person. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But if I can brush up on those skills, uh, (laughs) I would say that ESG or sustainable investing is an investment philosophy which aims to achieve competitive financial returns while simultaneously contributing to or aligning with social and environmental goals. Sustainable investing is quickly moving into the mainstream for investing, and we think that it will provide significant growth opportunities for the decade ahead. And it's now possible thanks to the proliferation of investment products across uh, equities and fixed income and the innovation in the space to really build a diversified portfolio, which is 100% sustainable and can help advance client and investor objectives across the financial and social or environmental goals. Thank you, Amantia, for everything you've covered today, for your time and for the work that you're doing in this important space. We appreciate it. Thank you, Paul, again, for the great conversation. It was a pleasure. 